You feel good? I feel better than I've ever felt in my entire <laughs> life. Yay, same. <laughs> All right. Well, then, um, I guess the, the best way to start is to start, as they say. Um, <laughs> so many, so many, so many damn books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And this is So Many Damn Books. And we have Charlie Jane Anders in the damn li- library with us. Woo! Welcome, Hi. Charlie. And, Hi. Uh, Charlie Jane Anders is the author of All the Birds in the Sky, which won the Nebula, Crawford, and Locust Awards and was shortlisted for a Hugo. Also a novella called Rock Man and Goes for Broke and a short story collection called Six Months, Three Days, Five Others. And her latest book is The City in the Middle of the Night. Her short fiction has appeared in all of the great places. So many great places. Uh, Some have won Hugo Awards and, and... um, Anders also hosts the long-running Writers with Drinks reading series in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I, thanks and uh, welcome to the damn library. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. This is so much fun. I'm so glad. Yeah, we're really stoked. Um, All the Birds in the Sky was one of the first books that we read on the show that we unanimously were like, we both That's adored so great. this book. Yeah. yeah well, we I'm glad you it. fired the person who didn't like it. <laughs> one person who didn't like it just got voted off the island. Yeah, like, you that's know, what happened. I like, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, I, that really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And like, you know, I love what you what you all do on this podcast and on the website and just like getting people to more involved with books. It's like super awesome. I love it. Thanks. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the ways that uh, we like to get people involved with books is um, make drinks inspired by books. As I've done for you with this um, new drink. Can I talk about the drink? Yes, go ahead. I'm yes! obviously going into it. <laughs> so amazing. I so love it's, it. Um, named, so in the book, in um, the city in the middle of the night, there's a nightclub drink called amanuensis that's um that um (laughs) has like a a sour cherry flavor is what one of the most predominant flavors in it and i took that away and i was like okay i want to make something with sour cherry and so i found this um maraschino liqueur um which is made from like macerated cherries and the pits which is kind of amazing the pits yeah really and it's all distilled into it and so it's got this like nutty undertone to the flavor yeah and so i played that off with um a uh pink peppercorn infused gin uh, that I did that at home and then there's uh, some homemade rom- rose syrup and um, a squeeze of lemon and shaken and put over ice with seltzer and a rose petal wow yeah we were we were remarking that's amazing the, the roses look like something alien on yeah. top of the oh it's weird God. how quickly something that is mundane to earth becomes surreal it does in different look contexts. kind of alien and the fact that you use the pits makes me feel like it is kind of the other planet cocktail because it's like we have to use everything we're on another planet we can't throw anything away Mm -hmm. you have to put everything in this drink everything (laughs) has to be in this drink because like we're living on the frontier on this other planet yeah and like we can't waste not want not kind of our booze has to be like completely efficient (laughs) (laughs) like the most efficient like cocktail experience you can possibly have that's amazing i mean i swear to god like you make up weird fictional cocktails like in in stories and like you just always secretly dream that somebody's gonna actually make one of them for real one day i feel like I've done it before and nobody's ever like come up to me with like the drink for my book, but now I've had that. And this, it's like the book isn't even out yet. And I've already gotten to have an amanuensis that just makes you so incredibly happy. And I hope that you post the recipe online somewhere. Oh Oh, yeah. They're all on the website on so many damn books.com. Click on the damn bar and you'll see all of the many cocktails over the years. (gasps) Oh my God. That's amazing. We're going to make these at home. That is so freaking cool. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about that. We'll we'll see what we can do. Great. That's uh, that's the drink, I guess. Uh, what'd well, you? Oh yeah, what'd you buy? What'd you buy? That's what we do next. That's what we do next. That's what we do next. Do you want to talk, Joe? Do you sure. want to talk about what you bought? So, uh, two things. Both are are slightly futuristic, but slightly more down to earth futuristic. One of them is. Um, featuring a story of yours, The uh, People's Future of the United States, a new collection that Victor Laval and John Joseph Adams put together. Mm -hmm. 
I've only read the first story, which happens to be your story. Yay! And I can say that it is a great out loud read. Uh, my fiance and I were we were doing a drive this past weekend and read it aloud, and it just it was perfect. Oh, I'm so glad! Um, wow. But it's a, I, I'm so excited to read the collection. It's basically every great speculative author working today, imagining a future for the United States. Wow. Which, you know, is hard to do. Or like thereof in some <laughs> cases. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I love that. It's such a great book. Yeah. Mm. And speaking of futures of the United States, the other book is Mark Doton's new book, Trump Sky Alpha. Oh, Ooh. yeah. It is, I've started it. It's absolutely surreal. The beginning is this sort of sustained, you could call it virtuosic, but there's that, I don't know, there's something a little bit skeevier about it where he imagines Trump in an, uh, an airship and he broadcasts these YouTube wow. addresses and at the end of this opening section, just the world basically goes to shit. Like he starts a nuclear war from the bridge of his airship. Oh, that sounds crazy. And that then I guess there's something about like the internet, but sort of an internet post-internet. Mm. I don't know. It seems wild. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that sounds all too real, except for the airship part. I, yeah, I don't know. But sounds... everything else sounds like it could happen right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It definitely oh my does. God. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about something you bought? Yeah. I mean, so I'm about to go on a, a completely like bodacious book tour all over the country in the mm -hmm. middle of like the polar freaking vortex. <laughs> so I've been just buying winter shit like everywhere I can. And I, I bought, uh, I got this like super giant pink coat with like a matching leopard print pink, like inner like layer of like I don't Hell know, yeah. a down jacket thing Ooh. that goes, they were both from Scotch and Soda. They were both a half price, so that was really good. And I got <laughs> these like sparkly purple boots that I'm wearing. Oh yeah, you are uh, wearing those. I just got those on sale at the Doc Martin store and they're like covered in purple glitter, which is, I think that's going to really help mm -hmm. me to deal with like what I've got coming. And uh, also, I don't know, um, what else have I bought recently? Um, Only you would know. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I also bought uh, the first issue of Wonder Woman by G. Willow Wilson, which I'm super excited about. I haven't read it yet, but I'm just completely over the moon that she's doing that because yeah. her Ms. Marvel was mm. just like the greatest thing in the universe to me. And I love that. She just like she redefined everything with that with her Ms. Marvel comic, and the fact that she's now doing Wonder Woman, which is like to me like the greatest superhero of all time. Um, that I feel like this is like a great era to be loving comics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's there's a true. lot of great stuff going on in comics right now, but that's the thing that I'm just like, yes. <laughs> um, I bought the, um, I bought a comic actually. That's what I was going to talk about was a, this comic that was pretty silly. It's, um, uh, Bob Gale, the writer of, uh, back to the future, yeah. uh, put out a ba back to the future, like odds and ends comic, like short story comic collection. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, and there were, they're just little things. Like if you ever wanted to know how Marty and doc became friends, this comic actually like tells you the story oh, wow. from like, oh, wow. Bob Gale's okay. imagination. And that's so, I do have that question. And if that's you, useful information. Yeah. So if you think that that's that, you know, it's little things like that, just little like, Oh, like the, and this little weird thing, like why does he have this thing? Um, and they're really fun. It was a nice little uh, nostalgia uh, button. Wow. Is that yeah. new or is it? Yeah. It's super new. I'm going to look for that. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm super, you know, I'm really glad that we've never gotten like a Back to the Future 4 mm -hmm. or a yeah. remake of Back to the Future or, you know, some kind of like terrible reimagining of Back to the Future with like, I don't know. Super I dark and gritty or something. Dark yeah. and gritty oh, reimagining of back, 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 back to the, the Future. Oh, God. That where sounds like, so insufferable. You know, it's I mean, that's just already the world the where one. Biff takes over yeah. the world, except <laughs> yeah. that's the whole story. The second one is basically dark Back to the Future. Yeah, it kind of is. It gets... Yeah. It actually gets really weird. Like the second one is is kind of disturbing. Yeah, it is. But there's, you know, there are good things in our current reality. That yes. Are, that you know, like um, I don't know, like new novels. Like yeah, this, like this novels. book. Like, like the booze. City and, there's, there's like booze. City in Thank the middle God of the night booze. by yeah. uh, Charlie Jane Anders. Let's uh, let's talk about your new novel. It's Yay. Um, why yeah. don't, can you tell our listeners what it's about? Yeah. So my kind of log line for the novel is a girl gets banished into permanent darkness and she survives by making friends with the creatures that live there in the dark. And that's kind of like the, the kind of 
one sentence description of it. It takes place on a tidally locked planet, which means that there's a permanent day side and a permanent night side. The sun never rises or sets. Everything is kind of just like the sky is always the same. And people kind of live on the edge of this permanent night. And um, this girl named Sophie gets kind of dragged into politics. And through a series of mishaps, she ends up getting kind of blamed for something and gets driven into the night where she's expected to die because it's really, really, really freaking cold in the (laughs) night Mm -hmm. uh, because there's never any sunlight there. And instead, she actually uh, discovers that these creatures in the night that we've been basically hunting and eating uh, are actually intelligent and have their own society, and she learns how to communicate with them, and then she comes back and gets dragged into politics again, but, you know, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of about, you know, what about what it would be like to live on this other planet, but also about trying to understand creatures who live in a habitat that we can't even visit, and they can't visit our habitat, and it's kind of like this weird, you know, this thing of, of like, trying to understand the other when there's so much, you know, between us, kind of. Mm-hmm. I guess when I was thinking about this book, um, I kept thinking about the persistence of vision. Like there's this huge world that I feel like it exists in and I could see it like referring to other little parts of the world. Um, And it just felt like a very, you know, complete vision. And I was curious, were you reading while you were writing this? Like how did you keep that um, persistence of vision going? Yeah. I mean, so this was this the process of writing the city in the middle of the night was unlike anything else I've ever written. And I've written like a bunch of novels, including some that never saw the light of day. And like, <laughs> you know, this one, it was kind of a messy process. I mean, it's always a messy process, but this one was really bad kind of, uh, I was really obsessed with this idea of the tidally locked planet where there's like the day side, the night side, uh, because those are real. Like, I think that mm-hmm. most of the habitable planets in our galaxy are tidally locked. Most of the planets that are in the habitable zone of their star. So it's really like, that we if we ever get outside the solar system we would be uh colonizing a planet like that and um so i was sort of obsessed with that and i was trying to imagine it and i basically spent like i want to say like a year and a half two years just writing in notebooks and i just wrote like i filled like four or five blank journals with just stuff and i was trying to get the story kind of nailed down but that never really happened with that phase of it Hmm. i just wrote tons and tons and tons of stuff. And a lot of it ended up just being world building about like every aspect of the human civilization on this planet and the alien civilization and everything else. And tons of stuff like what's in the book is like kind of the very tip of that iceberg, I feel like. Cool. And that's that's kind of what I had to do in order to to be able to finally write the story was to just figure out tons of stuff. And I was talking to lots of people. I was talking to scientists and just other random people. I was talking to a friend of mine who lived at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. I was talking to just like doing, I wouldn't say I did research. I think I just kind of poked around and read a bunch of weird stuff and just read some scientific papers, but also just like noodled around and ended up with this kind of giant sprawling mess, none of which was usable. Like I had just like a bunch of scenes that were like kind of garbage <laughs> But the world building was basically what's in the book now. And so that was kind of the thing. It was like I've never had a a, a book where the ramp up phase of just figuring out the world took so long and was so kind of complicated mm-hmm. that by the time I was writing it, it was like, OK, at least I know that stuff. <laughs> I don't know anything else, but I know that stuff. Yeah, it's sort of it seems like it was, you're like building your detail bank to be able to like actually react to something like not just like, oh, that's something from Earth, but to actually pull it from the planet. I don't know. I was really obsessed with um, any time that there was an, a creature, which was so the, the conceit that the book starts the book is about language and that it's been translated back down to Terra, which I loved this. Like, so you would yeah. hear of something like the bison and you'd get an idea of what a bison is, uh-huh. but it's n- not. It's some creature that has like other things. So anytime you would get a, a description that would then say like something about a tentacle or a beak or something that you weren't expecting, <laughs> it was, it was like suddenly made it even more alien and strange. This world. I really loved that. Oh, yay. That was like a cheat kind of for me. Like <laughs> that, I was like, I don't, I want to have this future world. I don't want to have a lot of names for things that are going to be like 20 consonants and like a million like weird symbols. I want to have like everything be easy to read I wanted to have it be all the names that we already know for stuff. So cat, dog, bison, crocodile, whatever, mm-hmm. you know? And like, so I was just like, 
what if it's been translated into English and they just used the common English words instead of the words from the future? <laughs> and that way, and then you get that kind of like, yeah, you get that kind of defamiliarization where it's like, oh, it's a bison, but it's got like these crisscrossing razor sharp threads inside its mouth yeah. that will slice you to pieces in like a split second. Mm-hmm. And it's got like claws and like scales and like, it's not a bison. Like we actually have bison in San Francisco. There's like a bison paddock mm-hmm. that you can really? walk to. Yeah, I go and hang out with the bison sometimes. It's really <laughs> it's really good. Like if you're struggling with a, a story problem and you're like, I can't figure out where this story is going next. You just go out like they're in Golden Gate Park. They just hang out there. There's like a paddock cool. and they sit and graze and you can walk pretty close to them. And just go up to them and be like, okay, so here's where I'm at in my story. And you just describe <laughs> it to the bison and they kind of chew over it. And it just, you know, I get some really good, like, ideas from them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. But but the bison in my book, yeah, it's just, it's like this weird defamiliarization thing where I, I found that really fun. And the, the translator's note also, like, it ended up, ended up doing a lot of heavy lifting because um, the translator's note kind of, if you read it carefully, tells you how the story turns out mm-hmm. because it's written after the story and it kind of gives you this giant hint about, like, where things are going, kind mm-hmm. of. Um, mm. So I love doing shit like that because it's like a way of like if people get to the end of the story and they're like, but what happened next? You can just go back and read the translator's note and you kind of know what happened next. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love reading science fiction that shows me something new and that feels tangible and and. Like it's something that I might see if I go out into the universe. Like I remember seeing Interstellar and reading all the articles where they were like, physicists actually learned something about black holes trying right. to model them for the movie. That's so, insane. As I was reading this and and thinking about like, wow, okay, what would it be like? What does the sky look like? Wow, I never thought about this. How much, how strictly did you feel like you had to follow the science and the way that things would actually look on a tidy little locked planet? Or were there moments where you sort of said, screw it, I want to write a good novel? You know, it was kind of a balance. And to be honest, I think that what I ended up with is not very scientifically accurate. (laughs) I'm just going to say that because I don't want people to come back and tell me that, you know, I don't want to be making any claims. I think that, you know, I talked to some scientists. There's one scientist in particular at Arizona State University, Lindy Elkins-Tanton, who helped me a lot. She's a geophysicist. Oh, cool. Uh, But, you know... um, I, and I read a bunch of scientific papers and I kind of had conversations with people. But I think in the end, I really kind of, I'm an imaginative writer more than I'm a, you know, a, a dutiful writer, I think. And if it's a choice between following my imagination and kind of like, and, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of wiggle room because nobody's actually ever been to an exoplanet. <laughs> right. Nobody, nobody's ever actually visited any planets other than like the moon, which is, you know, just our satellite. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wanted to just imagine it. I wanted to imagine the strangeness of it and the kind of the complexity of it and the kind of the, the weird interaction of humans with this environment where we're the invasive species and where mm-hmm. we've brought a lot of stuff with us. Like there's all these hints that we've kind of been changing the environment in various ways since we got there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we introduced a bunch of plant species. We introduced a bunch of other stuff. Um, I wanted to kind of just, so I, I think in the end, uh, what I hope people take away from the book is like a sense that colonizing an exoplanet would be really freaking weird. <laughs> and that it would be, it would not in various ways, it would not be like living on earth. It would be like, this environment that we didn't evolve for that is really not made for us and that we're not made for it. And that, you know, it's kind of always going to be a tenuous existence, I think. And mm-hmm. that, you know, even if you have quote unquote terraforming, it's like limit, there's limits to what you can do. Mm. And so I wanted to kind of do that. And I think that in the end, I think I would say that I was heavily inspired by the real science that I read. And there are parts of the book where I could point to it and be like, okay, I read this scientific thing. And then I came up with this thing based on that. But in the end, I think that a lot of the, there's a lot of liberties that I took and a lot of stuff where I was like, this is the story I have in my head. And I kind of wanted it to be poetic and weird and kind of a little bit fabulous. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody was telling me the other day that I feel like it's like this weird kind of scientific magical realism almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, there are just details that are so like the um, the, the time plant like uh, where all of the city like there's like times that like the um everybody's uh, right uh, because there won't be any time because it's 
day all the time. Right. So they have to have all of these um, oh, the rules. Oh, sh- like the shutters that the come shutters down. The shutters that come yeah. down. Yeah. Smoke in got the curfew. sky. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like the, there are, there's little smoke signals to follow like, oh, I know what time it is. And not only is it important to know what time it is for, but for the law. Like I was, I was really interested in that. Yeah, and that's a real thing. And actually, I I just did an article for The Atlantic, which I think is coming out soon-ish, about like the real science of tidally locked planets. And that was the thing that scientists do think about. Like, when we go live on one of these other planets, like, if the sun never rises, the sun never sets, the sky never changes. Like, there's no seasons, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just this kind of, at least on the planet that I came up with, there's this, like, constant cloud cover that just always kind of looks the same. It's just kind of pale gray and um there's no way to to track the passage of time and there's no way to know when to sleep or when when to work or do when to do anything and so in the book i have these two different human cities one of which has really really regimented time where Mm -hmm. like everybody sleeps at the same time everybody works at the same time everybody does everything at the same time and it kind of spills over into everybody gets married at the same time everybody like has children at the same time. It's like super regimented and super kind of uh, controlled. It's Mm -hmm. very controlled. And then the other city, they kind of rebelled against that and they were like, screw that. We want to do whatever we want and we're going to live in harmony, quote unquote, with the planet we're (laughs) living on. And that kind of results in kind of, I don't know, somebody called it the other day, Space Vegas. It's a little bit like Space Vegas. (laughs) Totally. It's a little bit like crazy and like out of control and it's gotten more corrupt as time has gone by and it's gotten a little bit like, uh, it's just gotten kind of bizarre and and non and chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I was really interested in that. And one of the things that I feel like the more I sort of dwelled on this thing of like the tidally locked planet and the time the passage of time being invisible is that it kind of changes your sense of everything. It changes your sense of the past. It changes your sense of like who you are and who we are as people because. Mm-hmm. You know, other than like basic biological processes like aging and like, you know, having children or whatever that that have their own kind of rhythm and have their own um, that you still there are still ways that the passage of time is obviously visible to people. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which it's once you don't have constant reminders of time passing, you just kind of lose some of that sense. And this it's this weird kind of timelessness or this weird sense of like existing outside of time that kind of disconnects people from a lot of what we kind of rely on to know where we are and what's going on and to understand our past and understand where we came from. And, you know, it kind of made me think about how in real life people often have a really skewed sense of like how long ago stuff happened based Mm -hmm. on how important we think it is and like how much we've processed it. Well, it's interesting. You have that character, uh, Mouth, who's grappling with where she came from and where she's going and and what uh and that manifests in like this like want to get this uh technology this device the um, invention the invention invention. right 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 which um, such a good like perfect macguffin name yeah like (laughs) what is the invention yeah oh wow yeah Uh, and then and you know it turns out to be like a the the culture of her people uh written down uh and it's sort of this thing that um it feels like you were grappling with of like do is identity like all the things that came before and where you came from and can she get there with academic rigor or is there no or is like do you make your own identity based on your own life and i feel like that was something that was like you were going between back and forth yeah, and I, I thought, you know, as, as part of that thing of, like, the timelessness and the passage of time, I was thinking a lot about personal history versus mm-hmm. collective, like, you know, national human history or whatever. And, like, the kind of tension between the two, that was something that I thought a lot about, a lot about in the book, and I'm glad that that came across because that was something that I was really kind of, I thought, it's something I'm interested in right now anyway because of some of the stuff that's going on yeah, in totally. America right now. But um, it's also something that uh, kind of naturally grew out of that the tidally locked planet thing. And, you know, I mean, an example I always think of in terms of like that tension between personal history and national history is that I always notice that the people who are most insistent 
that we have solved racism, that racism is no longer a problem. It's just we've fixed it. We've fixed it. It's all good. Those are people who tend to have been alive during segregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you square that? How do you square that in your lifetime we got rid of segregation? And you think since then, in your lifetime, we fixed this problem. Like, yeah. Yeah. you know, just in the time that you're one lifespan. Mm-hmm. That that was really quick. Wow. Good job, guys. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I feel like the world is full of examples like that where people, you know, something might be their personal past, but it's relegated to some kind of mists of time, ancient history thing. I mean, when I was uh, in school in the 90s, uh, people talked about the Cold War as though it was this thing that had happened a million years ago. Sure, mm-hmm. yeah. The Cold War, like, what were they even thinking? What, what, <laughs> what, what would it have been like to be around during the Cold It's like, we were there. We, like, it happened. It was like five minutes ago, you guys. And like, but people talked about it as though it was like this long distant era, kind mm-hmm. of. Right. And I think people are really good at that. People are really good at like doing the opposite too, where something that happened a really, really, really long time ago is suddenly super important and recent because we're dwelling on it Mm -hmm. or whatever. I think it's people like, you know, we have a weird relationship with the past as, as people, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and we have a, a weird and increasingly tenuous relationship to any potential future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But I, I was listening to, I think it's the most recent episode. I don't know if it will be when this airs of your podcast. That oh, you have With your partner. Um, our opinions are correct. Yeah. <laughs> and you were talking about this burgeoning movement of hope punk. Right. In, in speculative fiction. And as I was thinking about it, and as I was thinking about this book and all the birds in the sky, both of which grapple whether or not it's grappling on Earth or a, dis- a distant planet with climate change, with the way that humans sort of impose themselves on a place and then the place bites back. But both both books have a... Um, they have a hopeful spin on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed a lot of hope in this. Oh, good. I'm really glad to hear yeah. that because, you know, my biggest fear with the, the city in the middle of the night because it is... It's set on a really hard planet and it's there's a lot of really dark stuff that happens it i really really wanted people to come away feeling hopeful and i i, I feel like that's something that i i really i like as a reader i mm-hmm. like to not be left with just like and then everything was bad <laughs> and we were doomed and it was the end of everything and people deserve to die because we're bad <laughs> and like the end mm-hmm. yeah you know <laughs> i i feel like that's that's not it's not helpful and it's also a little bit boring mm-hmm. sure and uh you know it's there are reasons to Definitely with climate change, especially climate change is a thing where it's very easy to feel kind of fatalistic mm-hmm. and kind of like just we're doomed. And that's that's the end of the story. I feel like having hope and having like the sense that as good as we are at creating huge, giant messes, we're also really good at figuring out how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we drag our feet and don't get our (laughs) shit together until the last minute. Sometimes we like do an all nighter and cram the night before the test. But you know, we, we are good at, we're really good at problem solving. Like humans are really good problem solving creatures. And Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I mean, I think that both all the birds in the sky and the city in the middle of the night have a similar sense that, um, if we can kind of look outside ourselves and if we can kind of understand a broader perspective, then there's hope. Mm. Like that's kind of the thing that ties those two books together, I guess. Yeah. It, it was just, it's, it's really refreshing. Spiritually, it does feel linked to Le Guin's work, um, which does also always have hope. There's yeah. always hope involved. I was um, personally a little bit pissed that Andrew Sean Greer beat me to oh saying, God. but I, I mean, it's true. Like you are, our generations are Slicka Le Guin in even just like that spiritual tie around oh hope mm-hmm. and this idea that humanity can achieve these great things. It's a lot to live up to. <laughs> it's a lot to live up to. And it's kind of like, it's like no pressure. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I keep, I've ever since Andrew Sean Greer said that I'm quote unquote, this generation's Le Guin and they put it on the cover of the <laughs> book. I've been like, you know, Nobody can replace Ursula K. Le Guin. Nobody mm-hmm. can even. And, you know, I was reading a thing recently where Gary K. Wolf, who's this science fiction critic, was saying anybody who invites comparison to Le Guin or gets compared to Le Guin is going to lose out. Like, it's just that's mm-hmm. you're 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 setting yourself up for like to be crushed <laughs> because <laughs> Le Guin was just such a towering, you know, brilliant talent. And I've been rereading a lot of her stuff recently and just 
discovering all over again how impressive a writer and how just amazing her worlds uh, were and are and uh, how how incredibly lucky we were to have her for so long. Mm-hmm. The thing that I love about her work, and you know, I did, uh, when I wrote City in the Middle of the Night, she was still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was definitely thinking about her work a lot while I was writing it, mm-hmm. along with other writers who I think about a lot. Like, I always think about Doris Lessing a lot. She's like somebody who oh, cool. is a huge touchstone for me. Um, and I think that the thing I love about Le Guin is this sort of, this empathy she has for these characters, this kind of, she's very compassionate. She's very kind of gentle, even when she's dealing with people who are either going through really horrible stuff or being kind of monstrous in various ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that monstrous just, never comes from nowhere. It's like, yeah. Yeah, she's, she, yeah. And she's just, she's very gentle and very kind of like, you know, and it's actually interesting. I just, I've been rereading all of her Hainish stories and, or in some cases reading for the first time, all her Hainish stories and, and novels. And the one thing of hers where she has a character who's just bad, just bad basically, is the word for world is forest. Yeah. There's Major Davidson, who I think is basically just unredeemable, yeah. total garbage, complete garbage person. And she gets <laughs> into his head, and it's super jarring because it's Le Guin who normally, whoever she's writing, you kind of love that character while she's writing them. And then it's Davidson, who's kind of a rapist, a genocidal maniac, you know, kind of a, an archetype of like this this super violent warrior guy who is like, he's also very racist towards other humans. He's got basically like almost every flaw you can think of. (laughs) And she just kind of like really drills into how terrible he is. And it's really interesting to see that, that perspective uh, that normally is used to kind of eliminate why people have some spark of, of decency or goodness in them. So it's interesting. Yeah, I'm. Um, we're talking, or you brought a specific look when uh, for five ways to forgiveness um, for us to read. Uh, was there anything in particular, or is it? I mean, you said that you've been rereading all the stories. Was there anything particular about this co- collection slash novel? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I love it. It's. It's amazing. I think it's uh, some of her most strongest work. I think it's amazing, and you know, I guess so. It started out as four ways to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the that's the book version, and I have this like collected edition that's like the complete Hainish mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. and novels uh, from, I think it's the Library of America put mm-hmm. it out. Right, and it's, I, they're those cool black covers with the blue and red ribbon across yeah. the thing, and it's got the ribbon in the book. That it's I a beautiful, beautiful book with a it's great like, picture of Le Guin on the cover. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I love a lot of those editions. Like they've been doing oh, yeah. some great ones lately. They did a bunch of the Ross McDonald books recently. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Which you know, I love Ross McDonald. Like to pieces and like so actually i think i've only read four ways to forgiveness i haven't read the fifth one yet because i didn't i got confused and didn't realize that there was like an extra story in this other version so uh but i love the fact that it's it's very much dealing with this terrible legacy Mm -hmm. it's got that thing that we were kind of talking about with my novel of like grappling with like the past and grappling with history and like personal history versus you know the history of your culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also like the four stories that I've read. I haven't read the fifth one yet. Um, I was going to try and read it today and I didn't get to it. I'm sorry, but uh, it's dense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This it's whole a thing lot. is very dense. It's yeah. a lot, but you know that those four stories, it's interesting because I feel like it's the first time that I'm aware of, and maybe I haven't read a There's so much Leguin that I haven't read, Yeah, but she's writing romance. It's mm-hmm. like all romance. Yeah. It's like basically four stories that are interlinked and they all kind of like turn into romances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, you know, she has really fascinating relationships. And I guess, I guess the Earthsea books, there's like, there's, it kind of eventually turns into like Ged and, and is it Tahanu, I think? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of get together finally at the end of the Earthsea books. But she had these rela- relationships like, um, in the left hand of darkness, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, again, Lee, I has this like super, you know, intense relationship with Estraven where they, I guess they don't actually get together, but they have this really intense friendship. Right. And there's like a really intense, there's like 
a marriage that happens in The Dispossessed. And there are relationships that are really interesting in a lot of her books, but this is the first time I've felt something that read something by her that felt like a romance where people kind of start out not Mm -hmm. liking each other and then they get together and it's actually really like beautiful and kind of hot. And like, it feels like she, you know, maybe she read some romance novels and really (laughs) got into that because it's, I love that. And I love that it's, it's against the backdrop of basically four ways to forgiveness. It's, it's in the Hainish series. So there's like, Little bits and pieces on other planets, like we actually get to go to Hain, which I don't know if we've it's gotten really, to go to before. I think before. it's the only time, maybe the only time we visit Hain, yeah. which is the planet which everybody comes from originally, including us, including us. All all humans everywhere in the galaxy come from Hain originally, like our ancestors. And so we get to visit Hain, but most of it takes place on these two planets, which I'm going to mis- butcher the pronunciation of Weryl and Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how you I pronounce them too. <laughs> and they have this really intense legacy of slavery where, you know, they had this really horrific institution of slavery that obviously is very much, you know, reminiscent of slavery on in a, in on Earth and mm-hmm. particularly in the United States. Mm-hmm. And Yoe, which is like the kind of lesser planet, has had a slave uprising in which the slaves spent 30 years fighting against their masters and finally won their freedom. And it was, you know, it, it's this incredible thing that we don't, we only get to see glimpses of really. Um, and then, and now people are kind of living with this legacy of slavery and they're still just starting to get rid of slavery on the main planet, Weryl. And it's kind of like this whole, you know, it's, you can tell that it's going to eventually, they're eventually going to abolish slavery, but it's going to be really horrible and messy along the way. Yeah. And, you know, the more I think about those stories, um, having reread the first four, the more kind of like, there are these horrible ironies that are kind of packed in there. Like, I think it's the second story ends with this character who is a an officer in the military, and he's his family owns some slaves. Mm-hmm. And we're told at the end of the story that having kind of seen the error of his ways, when his parents die and he takes over the plantation, he immediately frees the slaves and then goes away. And then a couple of stories later, we yeah. read about another plantation where the owner did the same thing. His parents died, and he immediately freed the slaves and then went off to the city to do other stuff. And what happens after the owner frees the slaves in this dramatic, wonderful gesture and is like, the land is yours now. You can have the land. You can own the land that you've been working for generations. Immediately, it devolves into this horrible dystopian mess where the former slave overseers basically brutalize and rape and, you know, mistreat the slaves worse than they were ever mistreated Mm -hmm. and then ship them off to someplace else where they're basically treated like cattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like you have to wonder if that happened in that other case with this other lovable character who we saw, I'm freeing the slaves. And like, you know, it's what happens after you free the slaves is just as important as freeing the slaves. And yeah. it's kind of a thing that she never kind of signposts, but it's just like, you have to go back and wonder about that. Yeah. I think that's why, I, I mean, the, reading this showed me like part of why sci-fi writing sci-fi seems so seductive. Like there, you can deal with these issues, but deal with them in this sideways way where you can, I don't know, get into the, get into them in a way that I don't think I could if it was straight history or something of, of, of what's going on. In- yeah. I mean, your point earlier about generationally people who were alive during segregation are now like, Oh, racism is fixed. And you can't necessarily bring those people to the table and force them to look at the issue head on. But with science fiction, you can sort of, you can point out like, Hey, there are no easy answers and this shit is really uncomfortable but there's it allows you just that slight bit of remove of like oh this is the future this is some other planet this mm-hmm. is you know i can see the ways in which it's paralleled to america but i can also see the ways in which like the first slave uprising looks like the one that Toussaint Louverture led mm-hmm. right and like you can there's no direct parallel which i think allows that deeper engagement with the idea and this sense of it hits home in a way that it couldn't if it was a straight parallel. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the danger of that is that you kind of devolve into allegory, which allegory is really seductive, but also kind of often really heavy handed and often, you know, kind of preachy Mm -hmm. and, and simplistic. And often the people who get most upset by allegory are the people who you are trying to represent 
or trying to kind of help them by showing their plight through allegory. And like, you know, the the example I always think of is that one Star Trek episode where there's the people who are black on one side and white on the other side. Uh And then the other people who are black on the other side and white on the one side. And like they're they've been fighting a race war for like i don't know how long and they all two of them one of each comes on the enterprise and there's a lot of speeches about how they have to learn to (laughs) live together but then in the end they're running around through some like superimposed flames over their faces Mm -hmm. and one of them is the riddler from the 1960s batman show which is kind of confusing (laughs) so at some point the riddler got like you know covered in body paint and sent off to the space yeah yeah but um that's like an example of how allegory can be Super heavy-handed and yeah. super um, kind of just bludgeony, and um, and end up I think not really helping anybody because it's just you know it makes you feel kind of smug or or self-satisfied to be like well I'm not like those people I'm not covered in body paint for one thing right mm-hmm. but also I'm not as dumb as they are and it's like what Le Guin does in this in in Four Ways to Forgiveness which I think is much harder is she really humanizes characters on every side of this including you know um the one character who is a slave owner and in, mm-hmm. in that one story who falls in love with Sally who's the ambassador from the ecumen um and you know they have this really kind of spiky relationship that then turns romantic and then they get married and it's lovely and um but she humanizes it and she kind of forces you to kind of really live in this situation mm-hmm. in a way that's like dirt under your fingernails you know real like you can actually kind of sense what it would be like to live through this from different angles including you know having lived through slavery and in especially the fourth story in the book yeah a woman's liberation i think it's called you really you have to kind of like live in that and it's really intense and um it's you know that kind of storytelling where you go on this journey and you end up identifying with people that's the power of fiction i think is when Mm -hmm. you really are kind of drawn in and kind of live in something. And then you come out the other end and you're like, okay, wow. I, you know, maybe it doesn't like, it's not necessarily like, I'm now going to change my entire behavior. Thanks to having read this story. It's more just like, it kind of just sticks in your head, especially when you're in the hands of like such a powerful writer as Le Guin, I think. Mm -hmm. That happened to me, honestly, with the word for world is forest. There was something about that book where it sat with me for a long time and I kept thinking about it and I just, I found myself reading news stories differently. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, and I, I can't even pinpoint what it was. It's a short, it's a short little novel. It's like a novella, pretty much. I yeah. Think. When I was reading this, I was thinking more of like Anthony Mara and um, Constellation of Vital Phenomena while mm-hmm. I was reading it. Just in that, like, it's these short stories that are very close to brutal realities in Chechnya. Um, and, right. and it's ta- and it, and it's either happening or it's just past. And it's these things that I don't know, like that's what I was getting from this, that it's like just post something horrible has happened. And there's some peace in some of these stories that I was really like connecting to. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes it so poignant and amazing is that it is, it's not about the, the atrocities so much. I mean, some of it is, but it's mostly about the aftermath and like, how do you move forward? How Mm -hmm. do you, you know, once you've like defeated a great evil, which, you know, in this case is, is slavery. uh, How do you move forward? How do you build a better world in the wake of that? How do you Mm -hmm. not just, you know, then go on to make other messes or worse messes or just, you know, how do, how do you, how do you turn that into something that people can live with? And it's, those are, there's never going to be any easier answers to that. And Le Guin doesn't offer any easy answers. Uh, the main thing that she offers is that, you know, you have to, I think that especially in the fourth story, this idea that you really have to, you know, leave behind the kind of slave mindset and the patriarchy and the kind mm-hmm. of misogyny that, was foisted on the slaves, especially on Yahweh. Um, you have to kind of, you, it's not enough to free your, it, you know, it's not enough to free your body. You have to free your mind, like, mm-hmm. and your ass will follow. <laughs> right. Kind of, right. You know, and there's always moments like, like often the, the stories turn on like moments of like kindness. Um, forgiveness. Yeah. Which is forgiveness. Yeah. Might be one of the reasons that might be why she called it. That. There's something neat about this idea that the problem is never solved and you have to keep working at it because it feels like that's almost what she did in going from four ways to forgiveness to five ways. Right. And the fifth story 
without saying too much, it does take place a little bit further down the timeline and mm-hmm. it brings back um, old music. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, okay, cool. But there's, she wrote it, I think five or six years after four ways to forgiveness came out. Oh, okay. And there's something it, that really struck me this idea that it's, you know, you can go back and keep adding to this tale. And in some ways you'd look at that and be like, okay, you weren't like, you weren't satisfied. There's the, there's this myth around creators who are like, oh, I'm not satisfied. I'm going to keep, it's George Lucas and the Star Wars movies. Like he yeah. won't stop fixing them. Right. Whereas this is, no, the story keeps going and I have evolved as a reader. I have evolved as a writer and I want to keep working on it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just really cool. Like I wish more people would do that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I would love to see more people just like, especially adding on versus like going back and endlessly revising Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of continuing or kind of finding what the next thing is. I think that's really cool. And like there are certain writers who compulsively went back and reworked and rewrote their stuff. Henry James, I guess, like Mm -hmm. was famous for like, you know, he would go back and rewrite all his old novels to make them more dense and unreadable. <laughs> and it was just like, he would be like, this needs more words here and just like cludge them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think of uh, John Fowles, Fal- uh, The Magus, which he like fixed and changed oh, yeah. and oh, deleted a wow. hundred pages of and then added a hundred more. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Or like <sighs> Clarissa by like, you know, um, Henry uh, Richards, Samuel Richardson, Henry, Samuel Richardson, mm-hmm. Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. Like there's three different versions of that because he kept revising it mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, making it longer and, and more kind of elaborate every time. Even like Stephen King with the stand. I know yeah. people who've read the OG stand, which he like pushed out. You can't find that anywhere. Yeah. And people are like, it's a better book. It's tighter. Yeah. Well, why don't we um, pivot to the recommendation of things? Um, and oh, sure. Things that are worth people's time. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. Do you want to start? Sure. Uh I will. I recommend this um, novel, Talent, by Juliet Lapido. Just came out, and it's about a uh, um, someone trying to write their PhD uh, and a paper on inspiration. How you don't need it. That it's just work. That is what it is. It's not inspiration at all. Um, and as they're trying to work this out, they find a kind of find the family of like a sort of Salinger type of thing who and it turns out this this Salinger type of character was still writing while they were in their um hermithood I guess is what you might say and uh yeah it's a it's a unreliable narrator and she's sort of unlikable in a lot of ways and it's <laughs> sort of like a fascinating look at um at like what you do when you're desperate for inspiration really and, and what what and I, I love the academic conversation of like talent versus work. Um, yeah, that's and, awesome. And this is a really interesting um, exploration of that. And it's also ridiculously fast. Like it's one of these really, really fast reads. I couldn't believe how quickly I read it. Uh, do you want to recommend something, Drew or Charlie? A Song of Blood and Stone by L. Penelope is a fantasy book that I read recently. And I think it's being reissued now. Uh, in a slightly longer version and it's so amazing it's it's actually kind of a romance it's got that romance thing going on it's got the you know a romance between a woman who's got who's kind of a unique magical presence in this world that's at war with this magical kingdom and then she falls in love with a guy who turns out to not be exactly who she thought he was and there's like complicated court politics and there's like it's got everything it's got like Sweet. really really complicated world building it's got like a lot of like it's got great villains it's got you know really twisty plotting and the characters are amazing i was totally just blown away by the characters and i can't wait to read the rest of that series it's just mm. so much fun i love it wow that sounds oh, i'm great. sold i can't yeah, wait i'm super into it i'm gonna i'm gonna get it and take it on vacation yay feels like a beach read yeah yeah it totally is um i am also going to recommend a fantasy series nice uh scarlet thomas who has written some of my favorite 
weird, dense philosophical novels, The End of Mr. Y and Popco. Oh, wow. She decided to write a, it, it's ostensibly a YA fantasy sequence. She's calling it the World Quake Sequence. And it, it has some of the trappings of YA at, at moments, but she's still super interested in the ways in which like we interact with books and with technology. The first book is called Dragon's Green. And the idea is that it's now, but some, this mysterious world quake happened that sort of bumped the world back to like the early nineties. Oh, so like the internet kind of still exists, but it's pretty limited. Um, Everybody has pagers again. Oh my God. That sounds horrible. And this is a dystopia. (laughs) And then there's like, it's also, it happened because maybe of magic and there's sort of a, it pulls in elements of everything from like Jasper Ford's Thursday next series oh, to wow. Harry Potter. And just it, it's calling on all of these great fantasy touchstones to make this fantastical world that wow. is engaged with books and storytelling and like archetypes, almost Conradian archetypes of wow. heroes and villains. Wow. That's amazing. It's a, a big pitch. Yeah. The first book I flew through it and ordered the second one. It's called Dragon Green. Dragon's Green. Dragon's Green. I'm going to look for that. Mm. It's really fun. Although I'm terrified of the world where we get knocked back to the early 90s. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. You know, GeoCities like hired a, a wizard to like just, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Wow. Let's see. What else are we supposed to do? Talk um, about... We, uh, dear listeners, we like it when you review us on iTunes. Yes, we really do like when you review us on iTunes. And also, um, now would be a really good time to get uh, on our patreon.com slash SMDB and pledge $10 because people who are Patreoners are going to be getting a pin. I'm going to just tell Ooh. people. That's cool. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna be doing a, an enamel pin, which I've always wanted to. Nice. Uh, our great designer, Jeff Wiggins, um, Designed the who designed our logo and everything designed mm-hmm. the pin as well and it's a really cool pin and you guys are going to be excited to get it so become a patreon subscriber and uh maybe there will be surprises in there too who yeah. knows who's that's, to say that's the best way i don't to know do it. christopher nice. doesn't know we'll and, find out and, <laughs> and the last thing that i want to recommend to do is to go pick up charlie jane anders new novel the city in the middle of the night yay thank you it's so much it is great, great especially if right now you're dealing with the cold and the snow and oh, the polar man. vortex. Yeah. It is it is a seasonally appropriate. It's seasonally appropriate at all times, but right now I just I commiserate it a little bit more. Mm. It's mm-hmm. a beach read, it's a tundra read, it's <laughs> yeah. a you know, it's yeah, an whatever. everything read. It's a monsoon read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. It doesn't matter even if you're in a biodome, it's probably you know it's, it's totally a, a biodome read. Polly Shore is reading this book right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And thank you so much for coming by the oh, damn library. We really appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for the amazing cocktail. Oh no problem. Thank you for the hospitality. This was so lovely. I had a wonderful time. Thank you. I guess right. that's it, you guys. That's it. See you everybody. Bye.